Hello, hello, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons. In this episode, we will be discussing meditation and mindfulness, what they are, their history, current scientific research behind meditation, and the difficulties in studying this topic scientifically. But before we get into that, it's time for our What Happened on This Day segment. It is currently um, February 27th, and in 1932, Dr. James Chadwick wrote a letter to the editor that was published in Nature, which is a scientific journal, suggesting the potential existence of the neutron, which is the neutral third building block of an atom, if you think back all the way to like high school biology, uh, well, chemistry, I suppose, which consists of protons, electrons, and neutrons. He later published his proof of this idea three months later, um, which earned him the 1935 Nobel Prize in Physics. And for any budding scientific authors out there, this is actually a good reminder that publishing first, even if it's a suggestion or a somewhat supported hypothesis, um, as like a letter to the editor or even just a review, can be the difference between getting a Nobel Prize or not. That's something that my PI likes to say all the time. But enough of that, let's get into our episode for today and talk about what meditation and mindfulness are. The first question is whether there is even a singular definition. What does everybody think? Um, I think in kind of modern times, we often conflate mindfulness and meditation as a kind of singular entity, whereas actually meditation is, it can refer to any practice which aims to um, enhance your mental clarity and kind of train the mind to um, enhance your your calm, your clarity, and maybe even your spiritual awareness. So that it's a really diverse practice. Um, so, but yeah, I think mindfulness is something that is um, maybe a little bit more in the popular consciousness, um, but it neglects um, things like Kundalini yoga, transcendental um, meditation, uh, grounding exercises. All of these different things fall under the meditation umbrella, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I definitely agree. I, I definitely think meditation and mindfulness get conflated a lot. And I think mindfulness is an important part of meditation, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And from what I, when I was doing my research, I found it quite difficult to find any sort of universal definition of meditation. It largely depends on what culture and time period that you're looking at. Yeah, I agree. I don't know that there is really one singular definition, not only because of like what it is in so many different traditions, but also because of how individualized and personal it is to every single individual who does it. So mindfulness and meditation within itself to an individual is also going to be very different, um, even within the same practice. And so I think that also makes it very hard to define as like what it what it should be or what it is. But I don't know that there is a correct answer here. And that's something that we just have to be okay with. I was just saying, um, I was just reading about the history even within just Buddhism and even just Buddhist meditation can, it can refer to um, kind of meditation that has a more physiological um, change. So that can be things like Tummo, which aim to change your, um, make, make you feel like a bit of heat and feel physiological changes, or it can be kind of more mystic and it can aim towards union with divinity or it can be more based on self-improvement. There's lots of different aims, even within kind of original traditions. So um, yeah, I think it's important to 
um, be clear when you're talking about meditation what you're actually referring to because there's so many different goals. Do you both think that there is a difference between meditation and mindfulness? Like, what is that line, do you think? That's such a hard question. Again, I, I think it, it goes back to that. What are you referring to with meditation? Like, I get it depends on, like, what you think the goal, quote unquote, of meditation is. If you're goal is is to sort of reach some sort of altered or more focused consciousness i think in that way mindfulness doesn't necessarily push you to to that level always so i gave an example of um or i'll give an example i wrote it in the document of like you can mindfully cook so if you're cooking pancakes and you want to mindfully cook them you will sort of feel the the way that the whisk feels in your hands and listen to the sizzle as it hits the pan and the smells that come off but that's not necessarily meditation you could kind of call like do it in a meditative way but in my opinion that's more just mindfulness if you're viewing meditation as like an altered or deepened consciousness I think maybe you could later on after you're when you're starting to eat the pancakes, like sit there and like really like hone in on one particular sense. Um, yeah, but I think it largely depends on how you're defining meditation. If you're just defining meditation as sort of a focus and a presentness, then in some ways they're they're kind of the same thing. But if you're looking at meditation as how transcendental meditation looks at it, where you know, it's the typical sitting down, focusing on breath. Often there are mantras, at least in transcendental meditation, um, like internalized. I think it's mostly silent. Um, in that case, then your mindful pancakes are, are not meditation. <laughs> so I don't know. It's, it's extremely complicated. Yeah, in my mind, they're quite distinct um, because meditation is the actual practice, whereas mindfulness is just a component of that practice so mindfulness is just being aware and non-judgmental of your thoughts and at any given moment so it's a key thing to practice within your meditative practice but it's not the same thing in my opinion um so when I was about 15 or so my mom sent me to a buddhist monastery for a few days uh, a zen buddhist retreat which was weird because she was an atheist but I don't know why she did that um <laughs> But anyway, um, one of the things we practiced when we were there um, was um, working meditation. So that, and that reminds me very much of your pancake analogy, because we were um, supposed to chop vegetables and just be very present in the moment, focus on exactly what we were doing, focus non-judgmentally, remain silent as we were doing that. Um, we would do other things like building dry stone walls. And again, it was all silent. Um, everything you had to <laughs> focus on the sensory experience. The meditation practice would be completely separate from that experience, but the idea was that the working meditation would train you in the mindfulness that was important for that practice. So it's kind of about the mindset you need for the meditative state. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm kind of in, the, I think, the middle. So I do think that meditation is more of like a, a state of mind and it's a, it's a practice that you um continue in and develop over time to have like long lasting effects whereas i think mindfulness specifically is something that happens more in the moment it's an action that you take to 
um, kind of ground yourself and bring yourself back into the present. Um, and then that, that contributes to meditation. And I don't think you can separate like the two in that regard, but I do think they are different. One being a practice with like longer term goals and the other being kind of a present moment um, action that you take to help with, you know, stress or feeling overwhelmed, so on and so forth. So let's go ahead and move on to then the history of meditation. I know, Fel, this is like your area, your thing. So feel free to take it away. All right. All right. So uh, I just want to preface this by saying I don't uh, study meditation, the history of meditation. I think uh, it's hard, especially as a white person living in the so-called West for me to talk about the history of meditation with, while like touching all of the nuance. I will not touch on all the nuance of it because it's quite a, a nuanced and in-depth history. But that being said, here is a very basic history of meditation. So the earliest form of meditation or earliest reference to meditation that people have found is from around 5,000 to 350, 3,500 BCE. Thousands are very hard to say. Uh, 5,000 to 3,500 BCE, which shows figures sitting on the ground, crossed legs, eyes half closed, and what we might recognize or assume to be a pose of meditation. However, the first written documentation came in around 1,500 BCE in the Vedas, which were religious texts written in Sanskrit that are still used today. Uh, the history gets a little dicey around here, uh, but around uh, the 5th to 1st century BCE is when we begin to see the beginnings of Buddhist meditation. And the reason there's some debate is, is it's hard to really date a lot of, uh, a lot of times as historians, we look back and sort of be like, oh, well, we're going to assume that this is meditation when it's hard when something is not explicitly stated. So that's why there's some debate there. So uh, around the third century CE is when we have our first evidence of Christian meditation. However, it, it wasn't really that popular. It was pretty fringe. Uh, meditation is also seen in early Judaism and has often been seen as instrumental in the development of Jewish mysticism. So heading into the early Middle Ages, we begin to see meditation also becoming a part of Islam, most specifically Sufism. While medieval Christians adopted a form of meditation, it doesn't look like how we recognize meditation today. So our Eastern Christianity often repeated a phrase or a prayer that was done in a certain posture, while Western Christianity had a repeated prayer or phrase but lacked a common physical pose. Uh, there was often um, monks were encouraged to uh, practice meditatio. I think that's Latin. I'm not great at Latin, we'll just, but you, that's where we see a word meditation, meditatio, to ponder, which they were encouraged when they were reading texts to ponder and sort of meditate on it. And that was seen used uh, in the 12th century. And so now I'm going to jump forward quite a bit. So how did we get to today where we see meditation pretty much a part of the common culture? So those first types of meditation that I was referring to, the ones depicted on the cave, um, or on the wall art, rather, saw a surge of interest in the so-called West in the 1960s and went hand-in-hand -hand with the rise of the New Age movement in the hippie decades. Uh, it lived on the fringe for quite some time, though. 
But in the 1970s, we saw huge tractions in the beginnings of attempts at scientific studies, which we will go into later on the faults of some of those studies. Uh, many celebrities at this time, including the Beatles, studied engaged in transcendental meditation, which Time magazine called a drugless high. See how during the hippie decades, that kind of was a huge deal. So, however, it continued to elude much of the populace. It wasn't until the 1990s that meditation began to permeate out from the counterculture and into the common culture through normalization, because it's being written about in books, and there was a rise in meditation teachers and newfound intersection with psychology, which is sort of where we most often see meditation today, at least in a, a Western context. One thing I do, thank you for the history lesson, first of all. Um, and one thing I do kind of want to touch upon briefly is a misconception about meditation, which is that it it follows kind of that classical, like cave painting um, form where you are like sitting in the on the floor in a specific position, you know, your palms open on your lap for 20 plus minutes. Um, some people brag, you know, being able to meditate for, you know, over an hour, but meditation can take a lot of different forms and by no means do you need to be in a specific position to meditate or even to be mindful. Um, for instance, I know, I, I know some people who meditate while dancing, um, others while walking around in nature or just like taking a walk in the middle of the day. Um, I meditate sometimes by people watching. I'll grab coffee and I will just sit somewhere and people watch and that in and of itself is a form of meditation. Um, it's different for everybody, so don't be afraid to find what works for you, and don't feel weird if it clashes with this classical idea of meditation. And kind of on a on a similar note, it's not about emptying your mind necessarily and thinking about nothing. That's a that's really hard to do. Um, I don't think anybody can actually like fully clear their mind. If you can, kudos to you. It has never happened to me. Um, meditation really is more so a mental exercise. So pick, you know, one thought or thing and try to focus on that for a specific length of time. Let what comes up, come up. Um, if you have a distracting thought, like that's totally normal. Don't feel bad about it. Um, you can acknowledge it and push it aside and then continue. And like I mentioned earlier, this is a practice. So it's not something that you're going to be perfect at in the beginning, um, and in fact, I think a lot of people you talk to would admit that their meditation practice is not what they would consider to be perfect. Um, we're all still working at it. And kind of where you end up in meditation is different for everybody. So really don't base it off of anybody else because it's so individualized. Yeah, I think it's also important here to think about the different traditions, because when you mentioned the emptying your mind thing, that is a thing in Zen Buddhism. But obviously, not everybody's um, meditation style is going to be Zen. So I think don't just assume that meditation is one thing. Do some research, see what traditions appeal to you, see what, what is your actually actual goal when you're meditating? Is it just mental health? Or are you kind of more kind of mystically inclined? But, um, because that might actually help you to find a practice that works a bit better. Yeah, that's a great point. So let's approach meditation from a scientific perspective, because that's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> there are certain difficulties in studying this subjective topic scientifically. 
Um, but there are studies that have been done on the benefits of mindfulness and meditation. And we're going to touch on those briefly. Um, we actually have one study in particular that we kind of break down and talk about in detail. Um, and it's been linked in the description if you care to read it, which I encourage you to, to kind of see where we're coming from. But the, the primary issues when faced with trying to study the effects of meditation are twofold. First, we have the results themselves, which could be in a more subjective realm um, if the aim is self-improvement or inner insight. And these can be very difficult to interpret without carefully, without a carefully designed questionnaire or metric to standardize the outputs that people provide. And the second issue is something we touched upon in our placebo episode, which is this idea of blinding. Um, to reiterate, just for a quick second, blinding in a trial refers to when the human test groups don't know whether they're receiving an active treatment or a placebo. And this is to prevent, again, the placebo effect, which is um, the effect of simply being administered a treatment at all from interfering with our results. It's a way to essentially increase the, the like statistical rigor of a particular study. And double blinding, double blinding, again, refers to when the study administrators also don't know which test group is receiving what treatment. So as you can imagine, it's probably very difficult <laughs> to run a blinded study on meditation or even assign negative controls. Um, how do you tell a group that we need you to meditate without telling them that you need them to meditate? That, that would be very difficult to do. Um, the participants would probably know what they're receiving um, as a you know, quote unquote treatment. So the study would need to be designed very carefully. Would it be the most appropriate to simply have one group not meditate at all? What if it's just the hours away from screens that is the, the confounding effect? Do we ask the control group to spend that time quiet, quietly reflecting? Um, how specific is the effect? What are the outcomes? You know, so and so on and so forth. But I will actually direct it then to Hanny, who found a study that she she discussed a while back, and we can kind of get into that more specifically. Um, yeah, so this study is about Tamo meditation, and Tamo is kind of unique because it is a form of meditation that claims to have a physical effect. So the benefit of that is that you can measure specific quantitative effects. You can measure the um, body temperature of an individual. And in fact, the people practicing this meditation are doing so in inclement conditions. So they're doing so in very cold mountainous conditions. The idea being that they can practice this meditation and they can resist the cold um, conditions um, and kind of, I guess, transcend um, the limitations of their physical bodies. Um, so it's, it's an interesting study because it also looks at um, CNS signaling by um, uh, implanting electrodes on these practitioners. But the problem is the people practicing TAMO are... Um, they're quite limited in number. So um, the specific paper we're looking at, um, it has issues with um, really small sample sizes. Now that's understandable. When you have a really small population, you have to move to a really um, a very difficult um, location to take your scientific measurements. It's likely that yes, you're going to have understandable limitations in your sample size. You're maybe not gonna be able to standardize things quite as well. However, when we look at this specific paper, we can also see how in the figures, um, we only have in, um, single individuals represented in the figures. 
um, rather than the whole spectrum of variation. That, um, if you don't know, if you're looking at a study, is a real red flag because it shows they're not showing the spectrum of variation. Our effect isn't um, as repeatable as we would like. Um, secondly, there are things that they could have standardised. So we could have used um, better controls. We could have standardised for body mass index, things that could have kept you warmer. So is it the meditation? Is it just what you're what you're wearing? Is it just your physical size? There are, there are lots of things which mean that the effects that we're supposedly seeing are not necessarily related to the meditation. So um, it's just a, one example of how it's quite, there's quite a lot of evidence for um, physiological effects, but that evidence is not necessarily the greatest quality. But I'd be curious to what you thought about the um, study itself as well. Yeah, I took a look at the study as well to kind of read through it and see see what I thought. And after investigating the paper, I, I found a lot of similar issues that Hani has already mentioned um, above, but the most striking to me was the number of variables. So not only was the study done with a different number of people in each group, they were of varying ages. One included participants from the ages of 25 to 52, and the other from 46 to 70. Two very different kind of age um two different groups of ages, and that could also have an influence upon um, the outcome of the meditation. The times, locations, and also the differences in the order in which they performed the techniques were also different and were not standardized across the two different groups. And the issue with this paper in particular is that while they were trying to test for two things specifically, um, their hypothesis, hypotheses rather, were that the GTMO meditative breathing techniques led to an increase in temperature and that it depended upon like a meditative visualization. So they were trying to test for these two things specifically, but they did not control enough variables, in my personal opinion, to lead to a conclusion that could be definitive in any regard. Those are kind of my my biggest issues with it is really just the the number of variables that were not standardized within the study. And they had to work against um, some things that are really truly outside their control. And so they can't necessarily be faulted for that. But typically in a scientific um, study, you want to control for as many things as you possibly can, because then it really lets you narrow down what might be the influence upon seeing a change if you do. I also agree with them. So what Hanny mentioned is that a lot of their figures were very individualized. And when that happens, statistical significance becomes essentially negated because you don't have enough of a sample size to um, see a statistical change. Typically, we would recommend, you know, three experiments to do statistics with. And if you're only looking at one particular person and designing a figure off of that, you you might say that it's significant to that person, but was it significant to the, you know, 11 people that you studied all together? And I won't go into it here, but um, I also linked a different paper below in which many of the criticisms that we've talked about um, of the paper that um, Hanny first addressed were, were essentially addressed in this new paper where the investigators studied the effect of meditation on stress reduction and inflammatory responsiveness. I will note, however, that this study does an excellent job, in my opinion, at trying to quantify the differences by looking at levels, levels of specific chemicals involved in pathways that they think might be at play here. Now, the caveat to that is that um, the pathways that they might have chosen might not actually be involved in these techniques, and so that could lead to a sort of bias within the study itself. But I do appreciate that they tried to quantify 
um, the results of meditation by looking at different chemical changes, because I do think that's something that might be useful in helping us understand um, how, how this is happening and how it's affecting um, our bodies and our, and our brains. Yeah, that study that you mentioned has the same issues where they don't show you the error bars, so they don't show you the variation. And that's the problem. Like there is with, when you do human studies, there's tons of variation between individuals, like maybe to the extent that you don't even realize. So um, it could just be that the, the supposed effect you're seeing is just natural for humans. So you really, really, really need to see like that range and see how far it falls outside the range to um, draw efficient conclusions. And I think that's the main issue. Just the studies are not... The, the specific pathways, I agree, it's a really, really good idea, but actually measuring that in an effective way requires you to be all out, show us all the raw data, show us everything, <laughs> just lay it all on the table, um, because otherwise you can't really judge the data for what it, what it really is. So one thing I kind of want to touch upon this, um, and Hanny, it was actually suggested by you, was if we if we were to design a study on meditation, let's all kind of do this collectively for a second. Um, how would you design it? And could we solve the issue of a small sample size and do it in a way that also incorporates blinding without compromising the ethics of study design? Do you think it's possible? Belle, you can weigh in here too, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if the, I feel like blinding with humans is so complicated because like I, I have been a part of studies where I was supposed to be in the blinded group and I figured out what they were doing, which of course then, <laughs> which then of course, you know, then I'm unblinded myself accidentally. And I think it's hard because it, you would then also have to factor in the likelihood that people would accidentally unblind themselves because people are, uh, we're intelligent beings. Like, you know, it's easier to, you can blind animals very well because they're animals and they, they're not going to figure it out. We're but curious. humans, we, we want to know, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Especially if like, especially if you know that it, it's some sort of, you know, studying, especially since meditation is so linked to psychology it's easier, I think, for you to unblind yourself and be like, oh, well, obviously I'm meditating. So I think that would just be like nearly impossible, at least in my opinion, especially with meditation being such as it is in the popular uh, mindset, the popular um, consciousness. I feel like it would be super hard for people to not figure out what's going on. Yeah, the other thing to mention is, um, so I participated in a study, um, again, during my, my undergraduate, I was really desperate for money, so I was just doing loads of studies, just like, <laughs> to get paid, um, and one of them was looking at the effects of um, sounds played on your brain, so um, I had electrodes um, put on my head, and basically they played sounds on my ears for eight hours, and I watched Netflix with subtitles, and they just, um, they, it was like white noise, like really loud white noise, but the thing I want to mention from that is that the electrodes on my head were really distracting. And I was thinking, if you're, if you're measuring, say, if you're using um, an EEG, so you put the electrodes on someone's head uh, or on their chest, um, that's that might actually confound the results because you're looking at someone's meditative practice and you, they're not able to relax. They're kind of heavily aware that they're being scrutinized. But I have no idea how you would control for something like that. You would just have to 
assume that your control group was equally stressed. Um, yeah, I, th I think I think if I were to design a study, I would have groups doing different relaxation practices. So I wouldn't be able to blind it, but I would have a group who were trained um, in meditation. I would have um, a novice group, so and see if there was an effect on how um, how long you've been trained for, and then I'd have a group who were just instructed to do nothing, and maybe a group doing something like some other non-specific relaxation task, like, I don't know, gaming or something like that. Um, and just just to get, a, get an idea of how specific that effect is to actually meditating, uh, or whether it's just about taking the time for yourself. Because um, I suspect there would be an effect, it's just, yeah, that, that would be an important confounder to control for, for me. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with the with the groups that you came up with. I think if I were to do a study on meditation, I would look at more so the effects of different types of meditation um, collectively, like collectively as a whole, um, rather than focusing maybe on particular like one versus one group of people who are specialized in one type, and then a control group where people don't do anything. Um, I think that could kind of give a better overview of the different types of techniques, and I think you could also maybe see some patterns if you did that. And patterns often suggest other correlations. And so that would at least be a baseline to say within, you know, these couple of techniques that seem really similar, we kind of see similar results. And maybe within these different like meditative techniques, we see a different set of results, which also kind of separate maybe the differences that we see between different meditation techniques and the effects they have on particular people. But again, I mean, that, that study is probably flawed. <laughs> I'm coming up with it on the spot here. Um, it would definitely require some significant like thought being put into it to make sure it's blinded and has the appropriate controls and you know we can actually test for what we're looking for. I I I definitely see what you're saying, Hanny. I think that the collecting of the the data would be really hard. And in a way I think the way to get the most authentic data would be just to have people self-report. Um, but then there's a load of variables when you self-report that you can't control. And I think that's where we run into a significant issue with, with any study of mindfulness or meditation. Yeah, this is why I was wondering whether it would be appropriate to basically lie to the participants and say that the study was for something else. Um, that would be quite difficult to do, and I suspect that the blinding would not work. But um, basically, the other study we mentioned looked at um, inflammatory markers, so you'd just be able to take blood and do like a, an ELISA on that, for example. So I wonder whether you would be able to say, um, oh, we're doing a study on um, how relaxation techniques can uh, can affect your blood oxygen levels or something like that. Um, I don't know if that would affect how much people are breathing or, or because they would subconsciously be thinking about that, but um, some more easily standardised metric than a, a questionnaire um, I think would be really, really useful to have. And maybe taking blood would be less invasive than having somebody sit with electrodes on for um, God knows how long. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the issue there is that we run into is, is transparency about the study. Because I do think that you could say something along the lines of like, we're doing this to maybe look at like meditation's effect on like your blood cholesterol or something when in reality you might be looking at a totally different pathway that's unrelated um with components you know that can be found in blood and you can measure the levels of but then you get into the issue of like the whole when you when you design a study and you and you propose it to people who want to participate you have to be transparent 
And so it's like, to what level is the, the deceit acceptable? And to what level is it not acceptable? Um, I think that is like where the ethical line lies that you'd have to be really careful about, about crossing. I mean, Phil, you, like, actually, you both have been participants in blinded studies, right? So how would you feel if you were told one thing and then you found out later that they were actually measuring something else? I don't know. I feel like I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but I, I guess when I have signed up for studies or done studies, there has always been an underlying assumption where I'm like, well, maybe they're not actually telling me the truth because I know that sometimes they blind you in studies, which then <laughs> creates a very strange paradox where how fully blinded am I if I'm starting to assume that I've been blinded, whether or not I have. That could just be me. Um, so, yeah, I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be upset because I know that's how a lot of studies go. I would just go, oh, okay. <laughs> But it's definitely an issue that one has to consider. Um, just coming back to the ethics thing, it makes me think of um, pharmaceutical studies where they have a control group and they have a treatment group. And at some point, if they find that the treatment is very effective, they actually have to discontinue the study and give the control group who have an illness um, the, the treatment um, because uh, it would be unethical to allow them to continue without it. And I think it's just a really funny idea. I don't think this would happen, but <laughs> the control group being stopped, like, no, this meditation is so good for you. You, <laughs> you have to start a daily practice now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't, I don't think I would mind. I, I assume a certain level of trickery. We, we do blood experiments at work all the time, and people are not supposed to know what happens to their blood. Um, but I mean, people come in and they're like, how are my neutrophils doing? <laughs> so I think, yeah, there's this kind of a level of implicit um, nonsense that comes with studies. And I think I would try not to unblind myself, but it would probably happen regardless. Absolutely. Yep. All right. So now that we've talked about kind of study designs and the ethics behind designing a study for something as subjective as meditation, let's talk about what evidence we currently have. Um, is there a physiological or even a psychological basis on the benefit of meditation and mindfulness to people? Has anybody been able to, to find anything? Um, I have strong feelings on this. I don't know if it's better for me to go. I, I think I might go second because I have like some some strong feelings <laughs> on mindfulness in general. So what do you I, I want to hear your strong feelings. Um, so my my feelings are really mostly related to mindfulness specifically, not meditation in general. I think there are some studies we've touched on the issues with um, the sample size of studies. We've touched on the issues with um, standardization of outcomes um, and how that means that we might see small generalized effects, but most studies don't show kind of a, a really repeatable effect across large populations. However, Mindfulness specifically had this one big study come out. Um, I think it was from Oxford University, but I'll, I'll dig it out and we can link it in the show notes. Um, and it claimed a really, really, really beneficial effect for people with anxiety and depression. And that particular study kicked off um, this massive trend of using mindfulness for wellness, using it for mental health, um, and this kind of wave of kind of apps used for meditation, mindfulness, things like that. Um, the problem I have 
is that a that study has been superseded by later ones with larger sample sizes, which have shown that the effects are not that as strong as the original study. Um, and secondly, there are potential harms associated with mindfulness. So this is for certain groups, um, people with um, things like PTSD or um, existing psychosis. Um, you might experience things like worse flashbacks, for example, if you have PTSD and you practice mindfulness. So I really have a specific issue with it being prescribed for a mental health reason, um, because it's not appropriate for everybody. And I think there's this view that, oh, it's, it's meditation. How could it possibly harm you? But really, the studies that showed the biggest effect are where you have um, a mental health practitioner who is giving you therapy during the meantime. And so that's why I think he needs to mitigate harm. If you have an existing mental health condition, you should practice um, mindfulness or meditation with supervision to prevent these. Obviously, it's not going to apply to everybody. And I think for most people, meditation is going to be a beneficial practice. But just, you know, it's important to bear in mind that it's it's not a completely harmless practice. Um, and there are things we can do to make it easier on ourselves. Rant over. <laughs> It's, it's interesting you mentioned that study that showed um, a significant response to mindfulness and meditation in regards to like mental health, because um, there is a different study that I read um, that showed, wait, where did I put this? Oh, here it is. There was a different study that I read, um, a 2016 study that showed that mindfulness-based a stress reduction intervention for adults had a little to no effects on anxiety or depression in adolescents. And if we if we think about this result in terms of brain development, it, it makes sense in a way. Um, our brains aren't fully developed until I believe it's the mid 20s. Um, so the impact of meditation and mindfulness, the impact that it has for an adult may not be the same for an underdeveloped brain. And this leads to the other kind of overarching question, which is that is it the same for every age group? And that's something else to be um, determined. And I do agree with with your comment, Hanny, about meditation not being a replacement for therapy, not being a replacement for, for any kind of medication. Um, it can be done in combination with. I think that's, that's okay. Um, but I do think that we, we as individuals need to be aware of our own limitations and like mental capacity when it comes to meditation and ensure that we are mitigating any possible harm by doing it responsibly. That's the worst thing somebody can do is utilize meditation in a way that actively harms them with the intent, well, like a good intent, but it, it doesn't actually help them in the long run. It actually hurts them. That kind of, that kind of defeats the whole point. Bell, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, a lot of my thoughts are a lot more anecdotal, which I know that's not the best evidence for things, but I think you can put things I don't know, in perspective from, I don't my perspective. So for me, I have OCD and I also have PTSD. So my relationship with meditation and mindfulness is quite interesting. So there are certain kinds of meditation, specifically meditation that involves counting, <laughs> that I cannot do because there's there's this one kind of meditation where they like count your breaths. You're supposed to get to 10. And if you get distracted by a thought, you're supposed to go back down to one. Now you can already see how that would be 
a potential nightmare for someone with OCD where you're like, did I think a thought? Oh God, I thought a thought. Oh God, I just thought a thought. And then suddenly you're thinking thoughts and then you get obsessive about the counting. I cannot do counting meditation. And what's interesting is a lot of the meditation that I experienced was when I was in treatment for PTSD and it was in a lot of supervision. And I found it really hard to do the kind of meditation where you're supposed to empty your mind. The meditation that I actually found in mindfulness that I found most helpful was there's a, a type of exercise called 54321. It's often used when you're having like a panic attack or just even if you're feeling dissociative. It's five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. I think the sound and touch might be flipped sometimes. Um, so when I was look initially looking at meditation and mindfulness, I only had heard of the counting kind or the kind where it's just like, just note that thought and let it go away and trying to empty the mind or just be observant. But I actually found that extremely difficult. And it wasn't until I discovered this other form of mindfulness and meditation that instead of emptying your mind, it was just more about shifting the focus to an external sort of... Um, yeah, shifting to an external thing instead of an internal thing. So instead of being like getting obsessive about what I'm thinking about, I found it much easier to find a sense of calm when I was focusing on, oh, I'm looking at a crack in the wall and the bubbles on my water bottle and I can touch my blanket. It became a lot easier for me to stop obsessing <laughs> about the actual meditation. Yeah, I think for me, I actually prefer, in a way, sometimes the counting meditations. Um, well, that's not entirely true. I, I like utilizing counting for mindfulness within the moments. I think that that helps me, it helps bring me back to reality. Um, I like have anxiety. And so sometimes when things get like really bad and I'm worried about going to like a full-blown panic attack, um, the counting exercises are really helpful. It's a way to like gradually decrease and like bring me back to what I can control and see and like back to reality. Um, when it comes to meditation specifically, I am definitely more of a person who likes to meditate and recognize patterns. Emptying my mind, that doesn't work um, because it's kind of like you felt I get distracted. Um, my brain is like, Oh, remember that like paper you were going to read or you were going to go into lab like 30 minutes ago. And now you're like, yeah, it, it, it doesn't work. Um, but what will happen instead is I put myself in a particular place and I usually end up doing something to kind of like remove the background. And then I just let my thoughts kind of wander and like do their thing. And I analyze them for patterns. And so typically if there's like a lot of thoughts about like feeling stressed and it's like, okay, we like know what kind of state we're in today. Let's figure out a way to like deal with that and make it so that it doesn't have too much of an impact on like what'll happen. Um, or if there's a lot of like sadness or maybe regret or thoughts kind of dealing with those kind of things coming up, then like that's something that I would need to address later, you know, in whatever means necessary. So for me, it's much more about patterns, which is something that I don't hear a lot in meditation. Um, but it's it, that's what's been very useful to me in particular. Um, Hanny, what about you? 
Um, I really, really relate to Sal. I think we have, uh, we both have OCDs, so probably <laughs> working in a similar framework. Um, but yeah, I find that mindfulness meditation specifically is really not easy for me to do. Um, I find that if I have intrusive thoughts, sometimes they'll be like quite um, unpleasant in nature. And the mindfulness just kind of makes them louder. And I can't, it, you know, it's very, very difficult to let go of something which is so anxiety inducing. So um, for me, I also like to have an externalizing focus. Um, I mean, it does make me feel like a small child, but I have this glitter jar. I was going to bring it, but I'll, I'll send you a photo maybe. And um, it's, yeah, it's something that you can shake up and you can watch the glitter very slowly settle. And it's just something to kind of let your thoughts focus on um, and to, to give you give you a bit of a distraction rather than completely emptying your mind. Um, another thing I like to do specifically before kind of ritual and things is um, I'll have a shower. So I'll do, there's lots of ritual purification in Hellenismus and um, again, just a physical act of like scrubbing, trying not to think too much, just thinking about um, purity and thinking about what I'm going to do rather than focusing on things around me. I think that could be counted as a form of meditation. So um, but yeah, things like specifically emptying my mind and don't work for me. I also think um, there are other things I have never tried them, but um, like forms of yoga can be form counted as meditation um, and also guided meditations. And that might be useful for people who maybe are struggling. Um, but yeah, if you're finding that meditation is making you feel worse, you're not alone. Um, find something else because <laughs> there, there probably is something out there for you. Absolutely. Yeah. If, if what you're doing currently is not working for you, it's okay to stop it and go do something else. In fact, you should, um, because it's supposed to be helpful and not harmful. And there's no reason to continue something that's not serving you um, in that way. I also, Hannah, you bring up a great point of meditation can happen anywhere. Um, so can mindfulness for that matter. It doesn't have to happen, you know, in your living room or in your bedroom or anywhere. I mean, this is going to sound so weird, but I like sometimes when I'm at lab and again, like I'm a scientist in case anybody has forgotten, which you probably haven't. Anyways, when it's really stressful or let's say that I had a meeting with my advisor and it didn't go so hot or I don't have the data or maybe I spent a whole day doing an experiment and like the results are trash. Um, the feelings of like failure and overwhelm, like feeling overwhelmed and, you know, imposter syndrome, like those creep up fairly quickly. And sometimes what I will do is I will literally just put things down. I will go to the bathroom in my building and I will just, I won't like, I'll just sit on the toilet for five minutes and I will meditate to calm myself down and to bring me back to a point where I can think clearly and be like logical and um, address the concerns with like a, a clear mind. So if you have to meditate in the bathroom so you don't kill somebody, please go meditate in the bathroom so you don't kill somebody. <laughs> it doesn't have to happen for the place to be effective. Uh, that's something else to keep in mind. Oh, um, something else I want to bring up. Um, two things, actually. One is that I think a lot of places just recommend, like, just do 10 minutes a day. Just do five minutes a day. It'll be fine. Sometimes, you know, I think that's a nice idea, but you're not sometimes you're not going to be able to calm down and get into the state within like 10 minutes so yeah it might take you a little bit longer and that's okay um the second thing is what do you guys think about exercise as meditation because that's something that i really vibe with i like having i think it's just a combination of like the brain chemicals being released when i'm like running or lifting weights but also um 
the fact that you you literally are just alone with your mind when you're running you can't really do anything else so um i don't know if that necessarily would count as meditation but it is a, med- a practice that i find meditative and i was just wondering if that's something that you relate to sometimes i'll do it before kind of ritual just to kind of get into that runner's high zone natural high as uh, as phil alluded to oh yeah it's interesting you bring that up so that's something that I've actually been exploring a lot recently. So I use the Headspace app. This isn't a plug for Headspace. I just use it. And they actually have a thing called Move, uh, which is basically their form of exercise, sort of. And I love it a lot more than most other exercise apps because every so often they keep reminding you to check in with your body. And by every so often, I mean they do it like pretty much, <laughs> they do it as often as they can. You start and end each session checking in with your breath. And I have started pairing sort of these quick seven minute stretches. Sometimes there's a bit of cardio mixed in. I've started adding that to the beginning if I'm like going to meditate. And usually the type of meditation I like to do is visualization or guided meditation just because I find it a lot easier to get into a sort of calm mindset through visualization. And I found that actually exercising my body beforehand and sort of doing it a lot more focusing on the breath or focusing on the movement, what one would normally associate with meditation. By doing that while I'm exercising, I find it a lot easier to stay with that focus. And then by the time I get to the meditation, I've already gotten a lot of energy out and I'm now ready to turn inward. So I find it a very wonderful form or even if it's not exactly meditation, it's definitely mindfulness. And I find that pairing that with exercise and then going into a few moments of reflection or calm can actually be really helpful because then your body has sort of expended any of its like day jitters. Yeah, I agree. I, I do think that um, after exercise, getting into the, the the state, I guess you could say, for meditation is is much easier. And I think that exercise in and of itself can be meditative because you are so, like, I don't know how to explain this. You're doing something else. And in doing that, you can't, like, actively do anything else or even, even think about doing anything else. And so you're, it truly allows your mind to wander without any, any physical distractions. Um it happens less with exercise for me, but it happens a lot when I'm cleaning. So when I clean, it, it is such a mindless task for me just to like go around and pick things up and clean and whatever. Um, and so when I'm like doing something like a deep clean, that is actually a time where I do typically meditate at least a little bit, you know, during, during that period, because I'm physically doing something else and it takes my mind off of kind of the, the natural distractions. And it just lets my mind do think without like without inhibition um i think anything where you're where you're actively doing something else that prevents you from like physically distracting yourself can be thought of as a form of meditation because it truly just lets your mind think without like any kind of limitations if that makes sense yeah have you guys had any kind of transcendental experiences while meditating before That's a very, that's a very interesting question. (laughs) That's very interesting. So that's, 
it's kind of hard for me to answer that because sometimes in some ways I, I almost view meditation where even if I am letting go, I'm still quote unquote in control or I'm still, I'm still like very present. Whereas any transcendental moment I've had often feels, no, I don't want to say like I'm losing control. I'm not losing control, but it, it, it feels like the focus is not on me and the focus becomes something else, whatever that else is. I've had moments of like visualization or guided meditation that have led to sort of this transcendental experience but that's usually only happens if I'm seeking that out specifically and not just sitting and focusing. Because I, I find that sometimes transcendental moments feel almost like things your brain can run away uh, or like your mind runs away from your body a bit, which I think is in some ways the opposite of what meditation is supposed to be. So I try to keep, if, I, if I'm see, specifically seeking some sort of like really deep spiritual reflection i might start with meditation but my intention will be to like reach this altered consciousness that's that's not necessarily present if that makes sense yeah i've um i've had some some experiences i recall the first time i was working on like trying to see my aura um I, the meditation was kind of intense and, um, there was a lot of like visualization involved there. Um, and that was, it felt kind of like a, like a transcendent experience. And then I do my best. I am not perfect at this to meditate each day on the corresponding planet because I am like a planetary magician that has a very big influence in my practice. Um, and so getting to know the, the seven spheres is really important and meditating with them is an, is an excellent way to do that. And I've had some experiences during those um, where you the energy of the spheres becomes very prevalent. Um, I know I myself, when when meditating with Mars, have experienced increased like heat within the room. Um, I will begin to sweat much more profusely than I than I typically do, um, and I'm not the only person who's experienced that. I have some other planetary meaning magic friends that have experienced very similar things. Um, when I've meditated with Hermes, it's it was interesting when I meditate um, on the day of Mercury because sometimes instead of my mind becoming, I guess, quieted, it, it the other thing happens. Um, and I start getting all of these creative ideas. And after that meditation, I'm just like, my brain is like popping off with fireworks. And I have to go write everything down before I forget it. Um, yeah, so I've, I've had some interesting interesting meditation experiences that um, I definitely would attribute to, to being out of the norm. Um, they don't happen as frequently as, you know, I might like them to, <laughs> um, but they do happen, happen every now and then. Yeah, I tend to have one of two things happen. Um, one of them is that I get to the state where I'm just kind of watching like my thoughts, like a film, like they, I'm just watching images just flash up. Um, it's really hard to describe, but it's really weird because it's almost like you're dreaming or like you're watching your, your brain's just kind of natural progression through different thoughts, um, which is, is very surreal. Um, the other thing that sometimes happens is that I feel, again, it's like Fel mentioned, my mind is disconnected from my body, or it feels like 
my body is physically slightly detached. I don't, I really don't know how to describe this in a way that doesn't make me sound ridiculous, but it's like I can feel my body is almost like curled up in a little, little ball, but I'm obviously, my body is not in that position. And like my proprioception is all off. Um, and that is, is a really cool experience, it doesn't happen very often, but I tend to find that I get a little bit scared when that happens because I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, like it's, it's, it's very, it's very disorienting. So I think something that I, um, I would probably benefit from is learning more about um, uh, meditation practices and how that might correspond. When you do that, because I've, I've experienced that too, and it it's almost like you you leave like the physical your physical body but then you there are almost like yes. yeah. boundaries of like a more energetic sense that you you are surrounded by it's yes it's very difficult to explain but i think i think i've experienced something that's exactly it yeah yeah okay i feel validated <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad i could do that for you yeah. Fell is just like, what's going on? <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely, I, I do feel very similar to that. I, uh, interestingly enough, my, so my spiritual occult journey has been wild. Um, I started when I was fairly young, still in high school. And one of the things that I liked to do was what I called at the time, uh, astral projection. I have thoughts on astral projection. I I don't think I have time to go with them here. I <laughs> I do have a lot of thoughts on it though. Uh, but that's what I that's what I had access to at the time. That's what Tumblr called it. Oh God, Tumblr that's what I called it. And um, a lot of a lot of it was was a lot more just like really in depth visualization, working within my own energetic. Uh, I don't know, mind body, but I definitely felt a lot of that, and I still feel that too. Where I if I visualize deep enough, it's almost, it's like, I'm still here, but I'm also somewhere else. And for me, my sense of touch when I'm visualizing is probably my strongest sense, which is interesting. Most people it's like visual or something else. But for me, my, like if I am imagining a waterfall, even right now, while I'm imagining it, I can feel it very well. But if I'm really in that state, it really feels like I am there while also being here and that tethering I think is important because I think sometimes when people do those sort of uh, experiences they can sometimes get too far away and um, I've run a lot of guided meditations for people and I always have to remind them like stay tethered to yourself so yeah it's it's wild (laughs) I've definitely you're not alone in that though I have felt very much that sense of being here and being there at the same time. All right, that concludes this episode, rather, of Test Tubes and Cauldrons. Thank you so much for listening with us. We appreciate your time, and we will see you next week for a new episode. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.